Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a while since I've seen this building packed. I mean, it was, it was packed. Uh, it was a good service. So we're reading today from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you might impress on our minds and our hearts the truth of the resurrection. Lord, it might give us the courage to live in the here and now, knowing that death has been conquered in the hereafter. Lord, I pray that you might open our hearts and minds this morning to your word. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Jamie. So our theme for uh, Resurrection Sunday, kind of building up to, has been, what's the big deal about Easter? And last Sunday, we considered, um, we considered the truth of the fact that a world without Easter and how the resurrection is central to everything we believe. We also considered uh, the indestructible life this morning by Chuck, uh, how the promise and purpose of this indestructible life and this morning, we're going to consider this truth, that the empty tomb means that our labor is never in vain. Uh, and that's just a wonderful truth. I'm excited to talk about this morning. I do want to say a word that for children's church, we do have children's church for ages. This, for this Sunday, we have ages 10 and down. I see Tim standing right there. I think he's waiting for the kids. We forgot to dismiss. So if there's any kids ages 10 and down, uh, you can meet Tim right there. He's in the blue shirt. He's got the glasses. Uh, you can meet him. He's looking forward to meeting with you and uh, digging into God's word with you. <clears throat> so hopefully by now we're all the First Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, and just three points this morning. And the first point is simply this: that the empty tomb gives us grit. The empty tomb gives us grit. I think you would all agree with me when I say that the world that we live in today is anything but stable. It's anything uh, but stable. There is war. There's rumors of war. Uh, there's, there's political uh, polarization, right? Uh, there's lots of chaos all around us. No one seems to trust anybody. Uncertainty is everywhere. Things that perhaps seemed very, very certain no longer seem so certain to us. Uh, things like relationships, our workplaces, jobs, uh, our plans, <laughs> excuse me, our health is not as sure, not as stable, not as firm as we may have thought them to be. Everything is being questioned. Everything is being challenged. Again, there's confusion everywhere. Uh, we're confused about gender. Uh, we're confused about morality. We're confused about sexuality. We're confused about marriage. We're confused about the truth. Many are confused about identity and their purpose and their meaning in life. And sadly, many Christians are caught up into this. Many Christians are not firm. They are not stable. They're up and down, up and down, up and down. And the church of Corinth was certainly like that. The church of Corinth was anything but firm or stable or settled. Uh, the church of Corinth was rife with division. 
Uh, they were pretty lax with sin, uh, not practicing church discipline where they needed to, allowing sin to go unchecked. They were actually suing one another, bringing lawsuits against one another. They were arguing over spiritual gifts, getting pride in the gifts that had been given to them, as if they had somehow earned them or deserved them. As we talked about last week, some of them were even doubting or not believing in the resurrection of the dead. So they're up and down, up and down, up and down. They're tossed to and fro by every wind and wave. I wonder if you've ever known any Christian like that. I also would wonder if, if maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's you this morning. You're up and down, up and down, tossed about. You're unpredictable. You're erratic. You put your hand to the plow, so to speak, but a few minutes later you're doing something else. One minute you're kind. The next minute you're mean. One minute you're loving. The next you're angry, difficult to get along with. One minute you're warm. The next minute you're cold. Maybe your doctrine, maybe you change your socks like you change your, change your doctrine. Uh, just often changing your thinking on those things. You're, maybe you even think that doctrine or theology is a waste of time. Not worth the effort to dig into and think about and dwell on. Maybe you ebb and flow emotionally or attitudinally with the culture. Or maybe you watch the news and depending on what's on the news, that, that's going to impact your mood or the way you feel, or the way that you're acting. No one quite knows how to approach you because the one moment you're so kind and easy to get along with, the next minute they're scared you're going to rip their head off. You're up and down, up and down, up and down. Maybe your spouse would say, I never really know where I stand with, with my husband or my wife. I never really know what they're going to do, what, what's going to happen. One, one day this, the next day that. Or maybe, maybe you're easily tossed to and fro uh, by the opinions of others. You're insecure. You worry about what people think about you or the way you dress or the way you talk or your mannerisms. Or you, and you're just constantly replaying your mind uh, how people might be viewing you or thinking about you. Or you're easily offended. You're easily hurt by others. You struggle with insecurity. <clears throat> if that is you, the scriptures say to you in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, in light of the resurrection, my beloved brothers and sisters, be what? Steadfast and immovable. Be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast meaning, quite literally, to sit. And over time, if you're sitting, you're settled, you're fixed in your position, right? Maybe that's how you feel uh, after Sunday morning. I don't know. Maybe that's how you felt if you've been sitting there eating breakfast. You felt settled, firm, steadfast, right? Uh, but that's the idea. You're, you're fixed. You're stable. You're secure. Not, not easily uh, disturbed. You're not shifting. That's the idea with steadfast when you read that in the verse. Especially when it comes to your doctrine, steadfast in your doctrine, steadfast in regard to your inner faith and conviction. You are firmly settled in the truths of the scripture. You are doctrinally sound. You know not only what you believe, but you know why you believe it. That's the idea also with steadfast. Doctrine has this way of making you sit, to be settled, to be fixed, not easily swayed. 
Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The rock is what? God's word. See how they're steady, they're steadfast? See how doctrine does that? When you know the scriptures, when you know its truth, and it's deep in your heart and mind, it makes you steadfast. So many today are inwardly unstable. They're like water or sand, always shifting, never settling down with solid gospel truth and conviction. They're tossed here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine, and they shipwreck their lives. We've all seen, uh, perhaps on the news or even experienced personally, the, the aftermath of when a windstorm sweeps through, right? And you see trees have fallen, branches have fallen, everything's a mess, the yard's a mess, uh, the, the damage that that brings, uprooted trees and all that. The same is true when false doctrine sweeps through a church or when false doctrine sweeps through a home, or when false doctrine sweeps through your personal life, it destroys, it ruins, it wrecks. And it's sad, but I don't think sound doctrine is very high in a lot of people's agenda, very high on a lot of people's priority list. But it must be. It is how we are steadfast. It is how we become immovable. Remember what Joshua, or what the Lord said to Joshua Joshua 1, verses 7 through 9, uh, God calls upon him and says, Only be strong and very courageous. Now, how's he going to do that? Be strong and very courageous, Joshua, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Doctrine, right? Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. You see the connection for Joshua between being strong and courageous and doctrine? Meditating on God's word, knowing God's word, that made him what? steadfast, courageous. It gave him grit. It gave him resolve. Think about the the blessed man in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is a man who does not do this, but rather meditates on God's word, delights in God's word. How often? Day and night. That person, we are told, who delights and meditates in God's word day and night will be like a tree who does not what? Wither. Has grit that will prosper And this is the point in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, We're focused on verse 58 this morning, but you realize verses 1 through 57 of 1 Corinthians 15 is all doctrine. It's all doctrine about the resurrection. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the most exhaustive teaching or doctrinal statement on the resurrection you can find anywhere in the Scripture. So for 57 verses, Paul is meticulously, painfully, studiously bringing out doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Then verse 58, he ties it all together. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, you hear his pastoral heart there, right? Therefore, in light of the resurrection truth, be what? Steadfast. 
doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection, the, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and burial for our sins, which, which he talks about in verses 1 through 3, and the, the fact that Jesus is the pattern and pledge of our resurrection, and the fact that Christ is coming again and giving us a, a secure future, an indestructible future, that truth should make you and I steadfast. You see how important doctrine is. Doctrine is supremely practical. Doctrine determines how you live your life. Doctrine determines whether you'll be up and down, up and down, up and down, or if you will be steadfast, stable. Are you holding fast to the doctrine, to the teaching of Scripture? Are you holding fast? 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 and 2 Uh, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. You hear the steadfastness there? And by which you are being saved, but watch this, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So you've got to hold fast to that doctrine. The same is said in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, where Paul writes, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But then Colossians 1.23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. See, sound doctrine is found in the scriptures. It makes you steadfast, but you must study it. You must uh, labor to know it and apply it to your life. It will make you stable. And when you are steadfast, you will become immovable. If steadfast has to do with inner conviction and knowledge of God's word and doctrine, then this idea of being immovable in verse 58 uh, means outward circumstances and temptations. Because you know your doctrine, you know what you believe and why you believe it, and you've thought about the resurrection and his truth has gripped your heart, then you are ever ready to stand and be immovable. Foes may assault you, difficulties may come, circumstances may become hard and and harsh and and difficult to, to go through, but you are steadfast and you are unmovable because of your knowledge of the truth. Amidst the onslaught of diverse teaching, amidst the onslaught of temptation, amidst difficult circumstances, you are able to remain firm. You're not shifting sand. You're not fickle. You're not flighty. You're not up and down, up and down. You're not warm and then cold. No, instead, you have a firm grip on the resurrection, and its truth has made you steadfast and immovable. Picture in your mind a a, a massive boulder that can't be washed away. Maybe the waves keep hitting it, but it stands firm. Or this massive tree that the winds blow, and maybe the tree does this a little bit, but it stands fast. In the words of Winston Churchill, who's famous for saying what? Keep buggering on. Those were his words constantly uh, throughout World War II. He would repeatedly say on the phone, at the end of conversations, the end of meetings, anyone he was talking to, he would constantly say to them, keep buggering on. And so the Lord goes about him. But you remember his speech, the grit 
the resolve, the steadfastness that he shows to the House of Commons in June of 1940 when he says this, quote, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. <clears throat> we shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. He had grit, didn't he? He was steadfast. He was immovable. And those are the kind of Christians that we should all be. We should be steadfast and immovable. We should have grit in your home, in your personal life, when no one's watching, at your workplace, in the government, uh, anywhere and everything you can think of, steadfast, immovable, because of the truth of the resurrection. You should also be tireless in your diligence for the Lord. Uh, The empty tomb should inspire you or motivate you to be tireless in your diligence for the Lord. The verse goes on to say, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You hear how each one of those words really matter? Always abounding the work of the Lord of the Lord. Each one of those words is just packed with meaning. (coughs) As we think about it, we'll first try and settle on what Paul means, what's he referring to when he talks about the work of the Lord. (coughs) Some people interpret that, I'll call it minimally. By minimally, I mean they understand when work of the Lord, when Paul writes that, to only be referring to those who are in full-time ministry to only be referring to perhaps pastors or missionaries or, again, someone who's able to full-time dedicate their lives uh, to the work of the gospel. Others interpret the verse maximally, which is the opposite end of minimally. If minimally only applies to one or two kind of specific roles or responsibilities, maximally turns around and says, no, it applies to everyone, and it applies to anything and everything that they possibly could do. So there's a minimal interpretation and a maximal interpretation of this verse. I land in a mediating position, personally, as I often find to be true. And there's these two polarized views. Somewhere in the middle often is where the truth lies. And so the mediating position, uh, I believe, uh, well, let let me explain why why I take a mediating position. One, when you look at verse 58, (coughs) who does Paul address? He says, therefore, who? My beloved brothers and sisters. Does that sound like he's targeting out full-time ministry workers? Well, he's addressing the whole church of Corinth at large, right? So immediately, I can't say it's minimal in its expectations. He's targeting the whole church of Corinth and saying to them to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that phrase, of the Lord, I think unlocks the word work. And thus the idea that's here is that any work that we do, we must seek to do it intentionally or in light of the resurrection truth, in light of the Lord. We must conscientiously, no matter what you're doing, make sure that you're doing it. How? For the Lord. It's easy to just each day go through the motions and do what you need to do, but you're not doing it for the Lord, right? 
It's easy to go through your day and do all that you do and do it for yourself, right? And so I think the idea that, that's here, this mediating position, is yes, it can be anything and everything that you do, so long as whatever you're putting your hand to, you're doing it mightily as to the Lord. There was kind of a neat example of this last, last Sunday. <clears throat> I'm not, honestly, I'm not much of a golf fan. I, I very little, very, played very, very little golf. I took a class in college on golf. How exciting is that, huh? Actually, the best part was the last day of class where we, we all went to the golf range, got a bucket of balls, and just got, the, got to do that. That was fun. That's my extent of golf. But I, I do know last, last week uh, that Scotty Scheffler won the Masters last Sunday. Uh, maybe you caught that. Maybe you caught the press conference, and you, and you caught what he said. You heard, you heard what he said. That's pretty, pretty remarkable. <laughs> he was asked at the, the press conference how he balances his, quote, fierce desire to compete without letting it define who he is as a person. That, that's, that's an interesting question to come, come from a reporter. Uh, Scotty replied, The reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't a golf scorer. Then he added this, Meredith, my wife, told me this morning, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. As a result of that, Scotty said, all I'm trying to do is glorify God. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm in this position. That's doing it for the Lord, right? That's being focused on the Lord. A great example of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We should all think and do the same. We should all have that same mindset, that, that same mentality, that whatever you do at, at home or at work or in the marketplace, do it mightily as for the Lord. Do it for his praise. Do it for his glory. When you go to work, Monday's coming, right? <clears throat> We all hate Mondays probably, right? Maybe not. Maybe you're one of those people who love Mondays. But Monday is coming regardless of where you fall on that spectrum. Monday is coming. Don't, don't view going to work as merely a place where this is where I earn a living, right? Don't, don't view <laughs> your workplace that way. View your workplace as a place to do ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. View your workplace as a place to love others with the love of Christ, to demonstrate a changed life. Do it with the joy of the Lord, the patience of the Lord. Give him the praise and the glory. When you're out shopping or have errands to run, don't view that merely as, hey, i, I got to do all these errands. Uh, think of your errands as another opportunity to be a mission for the Lord, to love and help and be an example to those who are around you. And those examples go on and on, Yes. No matter whatever you put your hand to, do it mightily as to the Lord. <clears throat> now notice, I said every word counts there, right? He says, do the work of the Lord, how? Always, and then what? Abounding, right? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. <clears throat> Always means what? <laughs> Always, right? It doesn't mean from nine to five. It doesn't mean one day out of the week or one day out of the year. We are always to be doing the work of the Lord, whether you're young or old, 
uh, whether it's easy or hard, whether you're all by yourself or you have an army of people with you, whether you're filled with joy or sorrow, whether you're at home, at church, at work, wherever, whenever, we're, we are to be doing the work of the Lord. Always, 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 always. And how? Abounding. Not just always doing the work of the Lord, but abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding meaning more than enough, rich to superfluity. That, that's, the, that's the idea that's there. And Lenski comments on this saying, What a word for the thousands who work and pray and give and suffer as little as possible. <laughs> I, I read that and I had to sit back in my chair when I read that and I was thinking on that, studying that. That's, that's, a, that's an ouch. Instead of amen, that's an ouch. Lenski, thinking on these verses where it says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and again, abounding meaning more than enough, he writes, what a word for the thousands who work and pray and give and suffer as little as possible. Because of our wealth of heavenly spoils and our eternal victory in Christ, we can afford to abound. That's what Lenski writes. Is that you? And I had to think about that and wrestle with my own heart. Do you work and pray and suffer as little as possible for Christ? Do you evangelize, read scripture, build others up as, as little as possible, just, just as much as you need to do, whatever you think it is you need to do there? That shouldn't be so. The truth of the resurrection should compel you and motivate you and fuel you to abound in the work of the Lord, to be busy and tireless in serving him. And whatever you put your hand to, you do it mightily as to the Lord. True faith works. Authentic faith gets to work. It's active faith. Paul is an amazing example. Look, look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He's just talked about his apostleship. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he writes, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 58 in, in, as an example, right? Paul isn't saying, do what, I do, do what I say, not what I do, right? He's doing this. He, he's, he's vigorously, tirelessly, enthusiastically abounding always in the work of the Lord, because of God's grace in his life, I work harder than any of them, he says. The same should be true of us. Christians, God has given us much work to do. We must engage in it with all of our heart. We must be useful in advancing his kingdom in the world. We must not, do not be content with survival mode. We fall into that so much, or maintenance mode, you know, just, just kind of getting by, minimal effort, the least that I can do. Rather, we should meditate and ponder and think deeply upon the resurrection, and his truth should compel you to always abound in the work of the Lord. <clears throat> Don't say, well, I've, I've put in my time. I've, I taught Sunday school for, for 40 years. Someone else can do that now. Or I did this for 20 years. Someone else can do that. I've, I've put in my time. Listen, I'm going to say what I've said many times before. We need to stop talking about ministry the same way we talk about prison time. If that's an ouch, that's okay. If it's not an amen. <clears throat> right? People talk about it that way, right? I, I did my time. I was in jail or prison for 10 years. I did my time. I'm out now. Why do we talk about ministry that, with that kind of language? I did my time. Look, you still got breath in your lungs. You got work to do. 
to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Christ is risen. Nothing should ever stop you from doing the work of the Lord. Instead, we should say with the psalmist, 116 verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? It is wrong, so wrong to have the attitude of, I put in my time, or that's, I've, that, that's, I've done the least that I can do, you know, minimal effort. Again, the resurrection motivates, it fuels, and inspires to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because doctrine determines your life. Doctrine determines your life. If you really believe the resurrection, it changes your life. I heard someone say it this way the other day. Anyone can say that Christ is risen. Right? Anyone can say that. Anyone can say, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, right? Do you live like he's risen? Anyone here can say, he's risen. Do you live like he is risen? That's the question, right? That's the challenge. Do you live your life in such a way that others can know Christ is risen? (laughs) <laughs> the resurrection, as I've, I've said multiple times already this morning, is, is not just a, a one-year one thing that we remember. It's great to celebrate this one day, but how is the resurrection going to change your life for the next 364 days? How's it going to help you fight sin? How's it going to help you love that person who's hard to love? How's it going to help you to, uh, to be uh, with your marriage or with parenting or whatever the situation is? Let the resurrection compel you and move you and inspire you. That should especially be true as we consider the third point. The third point is the empty tomb assures us of the certainty of success. Not only does it give us grit, not only does it inspire us, but it assures us of the certainty of success in our labors for the Lord. Look at the end of verse 58 where Paul writes, Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Man, what a promise that is. What a statement that is. Again, many in our world, not only is our world unstable, but many in our world, if you were to ask them, would say to you that they think life is pointless, that life is meaningless, that there's no purpose to life. And not surprisingly, they're miserable and have despair and are discouraged, if not depressed. And I honestly think as Christians, we wrestle with this also. Christian labor, what I just said, to be always abounding in the labor of the Lord, does that sound easy? Well, that's hard work. Christian labor is hard. In fact, that word labor, it says, uh, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, that word labor quite literally means wearisome toil to get a good sweat going, exhaustion, tires you out. In fact, I think it matches the word abounding If we're to be abounding to that level also, we are tired. Serving God costs a lot. It's worth it, but it costs a lot. And quite honestly, in serving God, it costs a lot, but it doesn't always seem to produce results, does it? For being honest, right? Sometimes you labor and labor and labor for the Lord. It costs you so much, so much energy and time and effort, and yet it doesn't seem to produce results. Progress seems negligible. 
be honest, have you ever asked or even openly wondered, if not inwardly wondered, is it really worth it? Is it worth it doing what we're doing? I've, I've wondered that at times. Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever feel like quitting? Giving up? Have you ever thought or wondered after a week of VBS, like, oh my word, was that worth it? <laughs> all that effort, all that work. Was it worth it to come to Word of Life on Wednesday night in the middle of the winter? Four kids show up. Was it worth it? Was it worth it to go to growth group? Do you ever openly wondered, or again, <laughs> excuse me, inwardly wondered, does anybody care that uh, if I didn't do this? Maybe you've been wounded in ministry, someone you've loved and served and prayed for and come alongside with to help and only to have it thrown back in your face. And you're tempted to drop out, you're tempted to be done, you're tempted to quit. If you're wondering that, if you ever feel that way, you know Paul felt that way sometimes, the same one who wrote this. And and a few different passages, but Galatians 4.11 is one example. He says to the church in Galatia, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. He just openly says it, right? I'm afraid that I've labored in vain. If you've ever sought to serve God faithfully, you have met opposition and disagreements and disappointments. Sometimes, again, from those you've sought to help and love and serve. And the truth is, Jesus never promised, if you follow me, everything's going to go wonderful. If you follow me, everyone will love you and like you and fall all over you. If you follow me, you would never have any setbacks. <laughs> if you follow me, you, you'll never be criticized or misunderstood. Jesus never said that. But what he did say in our text is, any work that you do in the name of the Lord and for the Lord, to his praise and his glory, it will never return void. It will always accomplish its purpose. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor uh, to restore your marriage, your labor as a mom and dad, your labor at work, your labor in whatever situation you can think of, whatever life situation, if you're doing it for the Lord, it is not in vain. Never will be. We can be steadfast in our service, unmovable in our suffering, abounding in ministry to others because we know that our labor is not in vain. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. God doesn't overlook it. He doesn't forget. Matthew 19.29 says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, crucial part there, right? For my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Listen, because the resurrection is true, it is always too soon to quit. Amen? Is that true? Because the resurrection is true, it is always too soon to quit. It's too soon to give up. Think of it this way. We as Christians are, are playing the long game. We're making investments in things that don't immediately pay off. So maybe you, you give your offering to the church. 
You, you, you give your tithe or your money to the church, and maybe you could have spent that on vacation or, or bought a car or whatever it is you could have done with it, but instead you chose to invest that in the kingdom. <laughs> Who knows how the Lord will use that, right? That is not in vain. Maybe there's a Bible lesson you teach, and maybe it's not your best lesson. Maybe you stumble over every other word, or like last Sunday where I'm coughing after every other word, and it's for sure not the best that you can put forward. And, and, but you teach that, and you wonder, is there going to be any results from that? But you know if you taught God's word faithfully, the Spirit will use that. It will not return void. Maybe there's a person that you went out to help You're super busy. You don't really have time to go out and help this person, but you know from Philippians 2 to consider others more important than yourself, to love and serve others the way the Lord helps and serves you. So you choose to do that. You give up some things that you need to do to go help this person, and you're there all day to help that person, but then at the end of the day, this person doesn't even say thank you or give any kind of credence to the fact that you just gave up your day for this person, and you're tempted to think, well, what was the point of that? If you did it for the Lord and not for human accolades... It does not return void. Amen? Maybe there's that conversation you had with your spouse or the conversation you had with your kids for maybe you feel like the hundredth time and you feel like a broken record as you keep having to say that over and over again. Or maybe there's someone at work who's hurting or struggling and you just said a few brief words to them to encourage them in the Lord and maybe you forgot that you said it or you wish you had said it some other way or whatever, but God will use that to affect change. You ever hear the, the story of the, the gal who was uh, the little girl on the beach throwing the starfish into the ocean? You ever hear that story? I'm sure, sure some of us have. <laughs> so the story goes something like, and I might butcher it, but it, it's something like this one elderly fellow was, was walking down the beach, and he sees this, this girl picking up all these starfish and, again, throwing them back out into the ocean. And he stops the girl and just kind of asks her and inquires what she's doing and even goes on to say to her that surely <laughs> you don't think you're making any difference, do you? Because uh, he points out to her that she's just one little part of, of, of this huge beach with all these starfish that, because the tide has gone out, are, are probably going to die, right? She's, so she's trying to save them. So this man, great guy, he comes up to her and is like, what are you doing? Like, you really think that makes any difference? Don't you know there's like thousands of beaches all over the world and these starfish are dying, right? What are you going to do about that? What, what difference do you really think you're making? <clears throat> nice guy, right? <clears throat> well, she doesn't bat an eye. She picks up another starfish and throws it back out in the ocean, and her words were, it made a difference to that one. <clears throat> it made a difference to that one, huh? It makes a difference that one class you teach with the children, that one warm hand or that friendly smile that you give, uh, that one person you mentored in Christ, that phone call that you made, <laughs> that card that you sent, it made a difference to that one. Amen? It made a difference to that one. Your work for the Lord matters. <clears throat> it may not always be exciting. It may at times be very dull and unexciting and routine. <laughs> but if it's done for the Lord, it has a divine purpose and will count for eternity. It is meaningful because of the resurrection. But for just a moment, pause and consider this. <clears throat> it is not meaningful. It is wasted effort if it is not done for the Lord. If it is true that our effort that is done for the Lord will never return void, the opposite is also true. 
that your labor done in your strength for your praise and your glory is done in vain. <coughs> your labor, if you're trying to labor for God's uh, forgiveness or trying to impress him or whatever it is you might be doing in that way, uh, that that is in vain. You cannot and will not ever earn the forgiveness of sins. I believe many are going to be shocked on the last day with, with all of their plans and purposes destroyed because they were done in human strength and for human glory and for human praise. I wonder would that be anyone here this morning? Are you laboring in your own strength, laboring for your own kingdom, laboring for your own glory? Are you laboring for Christ or self? If you're laboring for Christ, if you're placing your faith in him, and you've recognized that the Lord Jesus Christ, he won the victory, right? Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He defeated sin. He defeated death on the cross. And then he rose from the dead, victorious over all of our enemies. Christ is the victor. Only what is done through him will last. Only Christ can save us, only Christ can redeem us, and this work that he's done is only effective if you turn from your own labors and your own uh, attempts, your own ambitions, your own kingdoms, and you place your faith in Christ, in Christ alone. <clears throat> All other labor is useless. Faith is the key that unlocks the treasure chest of salvation. <clears throat> If you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in him. Turn from your sin. Place your faith in Christ, who alone can and will save you. And you'll never regret it. <clears throat> no wasted effort in his namesake. <clears throat> so Orangeville Baptist Church, <coughs> the tomb is empty. What does that mean for us? That means stand firm. Yes? It means don't quit. Have you been thinking about bailing? Don't give up. Don't detour. Don't uh, shift. Don't go up and down, up and down, up and down. Stand on the gospel. Hold to it firmly. White knuckle tight. Don't swerve to the left or the right. Meditate on God's word. Have grit. <coughs> it also means to serve hard. Throw yourself relentlessly into ministry. Again, you have breath in your lungs. Use it to boast and glorify him. Praise our Savior. Don't hold back. Then don't do it because someone twists your arm like, oh, I, I, I got to do that. Someone told me I need to do that. No, you do it because you're so in love with the Savior and you so have that rock-solid belief and truth and conviction that Christ is risen. And so I throw myself tirelessly into labor for him every day of, that he gives me life. In Orangeville Baptist Church, the tomb is empty. That means it is worth it <laughs> that your labor <laughs> is not wasted. It is not vain. You're never going to regret living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. I read this yesterday and it hit me pretty good. If Jesus did not rise from the dead... <laughs> then, <laughs> if I can say it without coughing, <laughs> if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then nothing in life really matters. That was last week, right? 
Now let me say it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then nothing in life really matters. Amen? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing in life matters. If Jesus did rise from the dead, nothing else really matters, right? Throw yourself into your labors for him. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know, you know your labor for the Lord is not in vain.